Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series on the great doctrines of the Christian faith as they're summarized in the Belgic Confession of Faith. Today, with the Lord's help, we will once again consider the subject of the church, specifically the government of the church. And in that connection, I invite you to turn with me to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, as we read the verses 1 through 16. Hear God's word. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he first also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working, by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This ends the reading of the Holy Word of God. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to our hearts. Dear friends, the God whom we worship, the God of the Scriptures, is a God of order. When God created the world and everything in it, he did so in a certain order. On the first day, he created light. On the second day, he created the firmament. On the third day, he separated the land from the water and caused the earth to bring forth vegetation and so on. He also created certain universal laws by which the universe was to be governed. We think, for example, of the law of gravity or the second law of thermodynamics. Later on, he gave certain laws to regulate society. Think, for example, of the prohibition against murder in Genesis chapter 9. And certainly, we can think in this connection of the Ten Commandments, not to mention all of the laws governing the civil and religious life of the people of Israel. Well, as a God of order, God expects his church to be orderly as well. Now, that's expressed repeatedly 
in the letters, especially of the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, Paul writes, Let all things be done decently and in order. And in Titus 1, verse 5, Paul writes to Titus, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou should set in order the things that are wanting. So time and time again, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, urges the churches to do things in an orderly way. We might even say that the order of the church is a reflection of God's character. As God is a God of order, so his church and his people must also function in an orderly way. Now this is why it's important for churches to have a church order. A church order outlines how the church ought to function. It regulates the offices of the church, the worship of the church, the government of the church, and the discipline of the church. It's not a rule book per se, but it's a guide to help and assist the churches to carry out its task more effectively and more efficiently. Now this is also why we have government in the church. Now, Normally we don't associate the word government with the church. Normally when we think of government, we think of local or provincial or federal government. We think of political parties and the premier and the prime minister. But there's also government in the church, and that must be the case. Because without government, people would do whatever they felt like doing, and that would ultimately lead to chaos. What is more, it would be most unedifying. But this raises the question, how exactly is the church of Christ to be governed? Well, this is the question that's answered in Article 30 of the Belgic Confession of Faith. So far, we've seen in Article 27 what the church is in her ideal form. She is a holy congregation of true Christian believers, and that everyone is bound to join himself to the true church. We also looked at the marks of the true church and how she differs from the false church. Well, now we come to Article 30, which describes how the church of Christ is to be governed. We're going to look at that under the theme, the government of the church. And we'll consider, first of all, its nature, and secondly, its benefit. Our confession begins with this statement, and I quote, We believe that this true church must be governed by the spiritual policy which our Lord has taught us in his word. Now we confess here two things about the government of the church. We confess, first of all, that the government of the church must be spiritual. Now here we're touching on the nature of the church government. The church's government is not political. It is spiritual. And that means that decisions are not made among party lines or by a majority vote after polling various constituencies and intense lobbying by various interest groups. That's how it's done in the political realm. But in the spiritual realm, in the Church of Christ, matters are decided in a spiritual way by spiritual men who seek the spiritual well-being of the congregations whom they serve. Her weapons are also spiritual. The church does not use the sword or any other form of corporal punishment in enforcing the laws of Christ. Nor does she imprison or impose fines on those who do not obey these laws. Churches that have done these things in the past were absolutely wrong. 
The church's weapons are spiritual, not carnal. She is to use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to teach, to convict, to admonish, and reprove. Secondly, we confess here that the government of the church is to be scriptural. The church's government, in other words, is not to be determined by the wisdom of men, but by the wisdom of God, as he reveals that in his holy and infallible word. Now, this is an important Reformation principle. As Reformed Christians, we believe in sola scriptura. That is, that the scriptures alone are our ultimate source of authority for both faith and life. And that includes the life of the church. If we want to know how the church is to be governed, we must search the scriptures. Well, if that's the case, what exactly do the scriptures teach concerning how the church is to be governed? Well, throughout the ages, various answers to that question have been proposed, and that has resulted in various forms of church government. And there are three main forms of church government. There's, first of all, the congregational system of church government, also called independentism. Now, this system has its roots in the Anabaptist churches of the 16th century. It's the system adopted by most Baptist, Mennonite, and other evangelical churches. According to this system, each congregation is completely autonomous and self-governing. Now, although these churches are usually members of a larger association, each church is free to accept or reject the decisions of this body as it sees fit. What is more, each local church is governed not by office bearers per se, but by a board consisting of members of the congregation, both male and female, who are chosen by the congregation. Ultimately, however, all authority is invested in the congregation, which has the power to accept or reject new members and even to place members under discipline. Now, the great weakness of this system is that it fails to recognize that the authority of the church is rooted not in the members of the congregation, but in Christ, who is the head of the church, What is more, because each congregation is completely independent, there are no effective checks and balances. A church is quite free to follow its own direction, even if that is an unbiblical direction. What is more, in this system, the minister tends to play a more prominent role than sometimes he ought to play. If a minister is not particularly gifted, that means that churches that follow this system often flounder, since they lack the support structures that a denomination offers to them. On the other extreme is the hierarchical system of church government. This is the system of church government that's followed by the Roman Catholic Church and the Anglican or Episcopalian churches and the Eastern Orthodox churches. According to this system, the church is ruled by a hierarchy of bishops who see themselves as the direct successors of the apostles of Jesus Christ. These bishops are appointed by other bishops who are ultimately accountable to a chief bishop who is considered to be the head of the church. In the Roman Catholic Church, that is the Pope. In the Anglican Church, it is the Archbishop of Canterbury in England, who is ultimately answerable to the King or the Queen of England. Now, in this system of church government, rank and file members have very little, if anything, to say in the affairs of the church. All of the important decisions are made by the bishops. What's more, this system has historically been rife with abuse. 
bishops tend to become corrupt and money-hungry. In fact, at times in the history of the church, the higher up you go, up on the ecclesiastical ladder, the more corruption there is. This system also undermines the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. The idea that, that every believer is a prophet, priest, and king under Christ, and is therefore gifted and equipped by him to assist in the government of the church. And then there is one more system of church government, and it is the Reformed or Presbyterian system. And I believe this system is the most biblical. Now, what are the main features of this system of church government? Well, I can summarize that under three headings. First of all, in this system of government, Christ is the head of the church and the source of all its authority. Now, that's exactly what the Scriptures teach. In Ephesians 1, verse 22 and 23, the Apostle Paul, speaking of Christ, writes this. He says, God has put all things under his feet and gave him, that is Christ, to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Similarly, in Colossians 1, verse 18, Paul writes that Christ is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And so the scriptures are clear. Christ is the only head of the church. Now, in this respect, the reform system of church government differs sharply with the others that I've just mentioned. In the congregational system, ultimate authority lies with the members of the congregation. In the hierarchical system, ultimate authority lies with the bishops. But in the reform system, ultimate authority lies with Jesus Christ. He is the only head of the church. One Reformed theologian put it like this. He said, and I quote, The church is not a democracy, not a republic, but a kingdom, an absolute monarchy, in which no other authority has any significance save that of Christ alone. Now, the second feature of the reform system of church government is this. Each local church is a complete manifestation of the body of Christ. But these churches unite together with other churches of like-minded faith and conviction and practice to form a federation of churches, and in this way, maintaining the unity of the church of Christ. Now, we have a good illustration of that in Acts chapter 15. In Acts 15, we read that there was a dispute between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians as to whether the Gentiles needed to be circumcised. And that disagreement became so sharp that the apostles called a council of the church. And at this council, various matters were raised and a decision was made. What is more, this decision was binding on all of the churches. Now that's the case in the Reformed and Presbyterian system as well. When the broadest assembly of the church makes a decision, that decision is considered binding unless it can be proven to be unscriptural. The third feature of the reformed system of church government is this. Christ governs his church through duly elected and ordained office bearers. Now, there are three office bearers in the church of Christ. There's the office of pastor, the office of elder, and the office of deacon. And each of these offices reflect the threefold offices of Christ. The office of minister reflects the prophetic teaching or the teaching office of Christ. The office of deacon reflects the priestly or the 
caring and interceding office of Christ. And the office of the elder reflects the kingly or ruling office of Christ. And so together, the consistory or council of the church represents Christ himself, which is why, by the way, it's a great honor, in fact, the greatest honor, to serve as an office bearer of the church of Christ. Now, each of these office bearers has his own task to perform. The task of the minister is to preach the word of God and administer the sacraments. Now, of course, his task is much broader than that. He's to pray for the congregation. He is to visit the sick and the distressed. He's to teach various classes and lead elders' meetings and officiate at weddings and funerals and so on. But the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments are his main tasks. And nothing, not even his pastoral work, must stand in the way of that. Now, the task of the elders is to oversee the ministry of the word. That is, to ensure that what is being preached is according to the word of God. And they oversee the public worship services. They also oversee their fellow elders and deacons to ensure that all of them are carrying out their duties faithfully and according to the word of God. They assist the minister in pastoring the flock, and they assist in administering discipline. The task of the deacons is to collect the offerings of the congregation and to distribute them appropriately. They're also to visit and comfort the sick and the poor. Although these office bearers are elected by the members of the congregation, they receive their authority from Christ, and therefore it is to him and to him alone that they must give an account. That means, as one theologian put it, they are not deputies or tools of the people to carry out the will of the majority, but they are rulers whose duty it is to apprehend and intelligently apply the laws of Christ as revealed in his holy word. Now, that's not to say that the office bearers may rule as dictators. The church is not a dictatorship. In fact, on certain matters that affect the entire congregation, the office bearers should and indeed must seek the input and advice of the entire congregation. That's why we have in our churches congregational meetings, But at the end of the day, they are not answerable to the congregation, but to Christ. And they receive their authority and directives from him and are accountable to him alone. Now that means that the office bearers should be honored and respected. Not because of who they are in and of themselves, because in and of themselves, they're just weak and sinful men like everybody else in the congregation, but because of their office. And so in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, the Apostle Paul writes this, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Similarly, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13, he says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which are labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. How we treat, how we speak to, or how we speak about the office bearers of the church is a reflection of how we regard Christ himself. Well, this then is the nature of the government of the church. It is spiritual and it is scriptural. But what's the benefit of this? That brings us to our second point. This article lists several benefits which result when the form of government which we have described is faithfully followed. 
It says here, first of all, and I quote, the true religion will be preserved and the true doctrine everywhere propagated. Now that will happen when ministers faithfully prepare their sermons and when their elders faithfully oversee the preaching of the word of God. The second benefit that's mentioned here is this, and I quote, transgressors will be punished and restrained by spiritual means. Now that will happen when the minister and the elders faithfully administer discipline on those who go astray or who are living in sin. The third benefit is this, the poor and distressed will be relieved and comforted according to their necessities. And that will happen when the deacons faithfully collect and compassionately distribute the offerings and visit the sick and the poor. In short, as we also confess here, everything will be carried on in the church with good order and decency. Now, all of this assumes, of course, that the men who are chosen for these offices meet the necessary qualifications. And that's why this article ends with this statement. By these means, everything will be carried on in the church with good order and decency when faithful men are chosen according to the rule prescribed by Paul in his epistle to Timothy. Now, the reference here, of course, is to the list of qualifications for elders and deacons that are listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we could also add Titus chapter 1. And there we read that those who are chosen to the office of elder must be blameless, they must be the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one who rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. Now, I don't have the time to consider each one of these qualifications in detail, but suffice it to say that not just anyone may serve as an office bearer of the church. They must meet certain spiritual qualifications. And while no office bearer meets all of these qualifications perfectly, there must at least be a trace of each one of them in the man so chosen. What is more, it must be evident in their lives that they're striving to become more and more like this, more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it should also be pointed out, especially in the day and age in which we live, where feminism reigns, that one of these qualifications is that they must be men. And we lament the fact that in many churches today, the office of elder, deacon, and even minister of the word have been opened up to women. Now, that's not to say that women are less gifted or less capable than men. They are not. In some cases, they're even more gifted and even more capable than men. But God has ordained that the offices of his church are to be open only to men. And let us not question that. Let us not be influenced by, by the voices in our culture when it comes to this point of doctrine, but rather let us bow under the authority of Scripture. And so this is what the Scriptures teach concerning the government of the church. Now maybe some of you, upon hearing all of this, <coughs> find this rather boring and unedifying. You don't see the relevance of this, nor do you find it particularly helpful. Well, I can understand that. Because not everyone is interested in such subjects. 
But this too is part of the teaching of the word of God. And therefore it is necessary for us to know. (coughs) And God wants us to know these things, otherwise he never would have revealed them to us in the first place. But more than that needs to be said. What we need to see in the scriptures teaching of the government of the church is the loving care and provision of Christ for his people. In John chapter 10, Jesus compares himself to a shepherd and his people as sheep. And as a shepherd, he does everything necessary for his sheep. (coughs) He even, he says, lays down his life for them. And one of the things that the shepherd provides for his sheep is government. And how grateful we should be for all of his love and concern, also for the government of the church. Although Christ has ascended into heaven and is sitting at the right hand of his Father, he still loves and cares for and provides for his people. He calls and equips ministers of the gospel to preach his word. He calls and equips elders to stand beside the ministers and to help him shepherd the flock of God. He calls and equips deacons to ensure that all of the material needs of his people are met. Earlier we read from Ephesians chapter 4. And in that chapter, Paul speaks of, of when Christ ascended into heaven, that he gave gifts unto men. And what are those gifts? Well, he tells us in verses 11 and 12. He gave some apostles, some teachers, some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, what Paul is saying is that the office bearers are gifts of the ascended Christ to his church. Now, admittedly, some of the offices mentioned in this list have disappeared. The office of apostle and prophets and evangelists, for example. These were extraordinary offices given to the church in her infancy. But the ordinary offices remain. The office of minister, elder, and deacon. And these three offices exist for our benefit. They're gifts of Christ to serve, to perfect the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I wonder, do you regard your office bearers as gifts of the ascended Christ? Does that also manifest itself in how you regard them, and what you say to them, and and what you say about them? We'll consider that in more detail next week, Lord willing. The point is, These men have been given to us by Christ for our benefit. And in that way, it shows the love, care, and concern of Christ for his people. Since that is so, let us receive these men, and let us receive the whole system of church government that God has revealed to us in his word with joy and with thankfulness. And let us give him the glory and the praise for his goodness and his provision for his church. Amen. Dear friends, we always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road, and Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. For those who take the time to write, I will gladly send you a free copy of the Belgic Confession of Faith so that you can more easily follow along as I explain each of its 37 articles. 
If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again, or you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. That's banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed in your heart a desire to help us with the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.